want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, also hit the like button on this video. And any other platform, your five-star rating and review is a great way to show support for the show. Thank you for your support and let's dive right on in. Today's show is inspired by Nassim Taleb's book, Fooled by Randomness. I'll be linking to that book in the show notes. And if you were to purchase that book through my affiliate link, then you will be supporting the show. I recently finished Nassim Taleb's book about randomness, and I think it is an interesting concept that I want to discuss with you today because this concept of backtesting is very common in the investing world. And I think it's an extreme problem that we face as investors because it's very easy to be fooled by backtesting and the value of backtesting or the value of not backtesting. Um, backtesting has been used to create many of the strategies that people use in investing today. And I think this is both harmful and counterproductive to your investing mindset. Now there's value in what's done with them, but I think in a lot of ways they're harmful because well, we're gonna go through the various reasonings, but today's show is gonna be very important. I think what we're going to do might be confusing at first, but I'm going to talk a lot about theory and mental models that I use in my investing process and in my way of thinking about the world. That doesn't apply just to investing, it applies to other things, but I think in particular, if I do this show well, if I can really communicate it well, you'll be able to understand how I see backtests to be a problem. So this show wasn't all, only inspired by this book, Fooled by Randomness. It's also been inspired by many of the conversations I've been, been a part of and seen in Twitter over the last month or so. People talking about the returns since the dip in the stock market in March 2020 up through now in July 2020, how the stock market's gone up a ton. Um, you've had different rates of performance and you know whether you should have bought that dip, whether you should have sold at the top, what you should be doing now. Uh, basically, a lot of noise about what investors should be doing. There's also been a lot of talk about the value of stuff like Bitcoin, the value of stuff like gold as good diversification. Um, the idea that, well, if you add gold to a portfolio, it can improve your returns um, because it can damp out volatility. It can have different returns than the bonds, different returns than stocks in a portfolio. I've seen a lot of discussion the value of bonds and how, again, they tend to move opposite from stocks. Um, when I'll talk about today is how I think this evidence, this idea that bonds move opposite from stocks is not 
very concrete. It's not very proven out. There's not a strong logic for why this would happen in the future. Um, if you look at the past, this may have been true, but I don't think that these things necessarily pull into the future. And I think that's really the concept that I want to talk about today. When we look at backtesting, what we're doing is we're looking at the past and we're saying what has worked in investing in the past. So whether you look at 30 years of history, 50 years of history, 100 years of history, what people do is they'll take the, their computers, they'll run models, and they'll say, you know, what percentage of stocks, what percentage of bonds, what percentage of gold, what percentage of U.S. treasuries, what percentage of international stocks should I own in a portfolio to maximize the returns and minimize the volatility? And basically, the computer model goes in and takes all the past data that we have, does a bunch of calculations and says, well, you need 60% stocks, 20% bonds, 10% gold, 5% this, and maybe 1% Bitcoin. And if you put all of that together, you're going to have an optimal portfolio. It's going to have the highest returns with the lowest volatility. And that's what you should be able to do. And like, oh, well, maybe gold itself hasn't done very well over the long term, but simply adding it to a portfolio will add you, allow you to outperform what you otherwise would have. Or adding bonds to your portfolio has allowed you to outperform what stocks alone would have done or doesn't punish the portfolio that much while giving you a huge benefit in volatility reduction. The problem that all of these arguments have is they're based on past empirical evidence, data that we have of past performance that I believe is not predictive of the future. Because what the evidence in the past does is it ignores the uncertainty that today's future would be the future that happened. What we're doing is we're basically taking a full hindsight bias, the whole idea that hindsight is 2020, that in the when you look at the past, things seem obvious. Yet what was obvious today of how things happened is not necessarily the way that things could have would have happened. You know, we look at the past and say, okay, well, investing during, you know, an easy example would be something like, well, obviously, investors that sold stock at the beginning of World War II in the United States because the war was coming was a mistake. Because look at how well we did. People that had simply just stayed invested and bought stocks would have performed extremely well over the next 60 years from the 40s all the way to the 2000s. Except that ignores the possibility that what if the, the what if the United States were to have lost World War II? What if the United States was bombed into the ground just like the Germans had happened to them? If Germany had won World War II, it would have been a tragic mistake to be invested in the United States stock market. Because the United States stock market might have gone to zero like the German stock market did. You have to be very careful with looking at the past and assuming that the future of today, because today is the future of the past, is a useful way of thinking and assessing how the future of our future will go. You know, almost every investment advisor has to put a little disclaimer in their writings that basically says that past performance is not indicative of future results. 
This is required in large part by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States, that basically says you cannot say that the past performance will lead to future results. And yet all of our research that comes out, maybe not all, but let's say a huge proportion of our research that comes out about investing, about how you should make decisions, about what stocks are good, what stocks are this, are all based on past performance and looking at past performance to judge future results. So on the one hand, you develop your whole process based upon this idea of what past performance has done, and then you use that to create a process for how to invest in the future. And yet at the same time, you talk out of the other side of your mouth that says, well, you can't use past performance to determine what future results will be. So either one of a few things has happened. People are hypocrites. They say one thing and they mean another. Um, or they say they truly believe that past performance can lead to future results, but they're required to say something different and they just have to go along with that. Or people are wrong. Something along these lines is happening. So I don't have an answer for that, but what I do have is a way of thinking about this problem that I think will be helpful. And I think the problem that people have, or one of the problems, there's a lot of problems along with the idea of backtesting. This is why I'm calling this the tyranny of backtesting. It seems useful, but you have to be very careful of taking data outside of its boundary conditions. There's a concept in math and statistics called curve fitting and extrapolation. So curve fitting is the basic process of backtesting. You take past data or you take some set of data and you fit a model to that data to say, okay, well, what is the formula that best fits this data? If you have a bunch of stuff in a graph and you're trying to draw a line between it, you're trying to fit that line to the graph. And there's a mathematical process of doing that. And this is what the computer's doing when it's backtesting. It runs a mathematical model and it changes the, the formula until the line fits. Until it says, oh, this is the decision. These are the stocks. These are the bonds that you should have bought if you wanted to maximize your returns. And then what we do is we then try and take that model, if you're doing a backtest, and say, okay, well, how can I use this model, which worked in the past, to work in the future. The problem is, is that the past is not like the future, or it might not be like the future. The problem is the past could be exactly like the future. The future could be something where the past is useful data. The problem is, is the future might also not be useful, or the past might not be a useful guide to the future. We don't know. And it's that uncertainty that isn't there in the model. And that's the problem of extrapolation. So extrapolation is the concept where you're using a model beyond the range of observed data. So we have observed data. Today it's 2020. But this will apply whenever you're listening to this. It's 2020 today, and maybe we have um, investing data back to the late 1800s. But let's just call it 1900 to be simple. So you have 120 years of data on investing in the United States and some other countries around the world. 120 years of data. Well, if we call a generation 20 years, then you have six generations of data for investing. Well, in any sort of scientific 
process, six points of data is almost meaningless. It's almost useless. And yet, we treat our 120 years of results as if it's sacrosanct, that there's nothing that can go wrong, that we've learned everything in the world there is about investing. People know so little about investing compared to what's out there. But we have this, we've been fooled into thinking that we understand the world because we have 120 years of history. History goes on for thousands and thousands of years. And yet we think 120 years of investing data is sufficient. When really this is only six generations. Is it really 120 different data points? Is it six different data points? Now, if you say every day is a different data point, well, now we're in the tens of thousands. But is that really the right way of doing it? I don't have an answer for that. What I say is what we're trying to do would violate a lot of the statistical analysis that you would do. If you're looking at data on you know, how quickly trees grow or something like that, or, and you only looked at data from one season and you ignored winter, you're going to get different results if you ignore the parts of the seasons where things die and you only look at the results from when things are rapidly growing. You have to be careful of what your boundary conditions are. And this is where extrapolation can become a problem. If you take a model fitted to the data from 1900 to 2020, and you try and apply it to the data that we don't yet know exists, but will eventually exist from 2020 to 2140, or from 2020 to 2500, that model that you created might no longer work. And you might say, oh, well, that makes sense. You know, what, you know, you just, it's hard to predict the future, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. It's not just about predicting the future. The problem is, is we've taken the model, which has been fitted specifically to certain conditions in the past, certain rates of inflation, certain rates of population growth, certain rates of immigration, certain rates of productivity growth, certain different technologies being created. Um, a specific percentage of the population that's interested in investing, a specific percentage of the population that has enough money capable to invest, a certain percent of the population, a certain percent of the world that has the money available to invest and is interested in investing. Parts of that back history had access to index funds. Parts of it did not. When you back test into history, when index funds did not exist, it becomes very difficult to assess whether the trades you're saying could have taken place could have actually taken place because no index fund existed to do that. Or the commissions were so high that those changes would not have been possible. Those trades would not have been possible without massive losses. Well, they ignore those in, the, in models. They ignore those when developing these models because it gets in the way gets in the way of using the science, and I'm using, you know, fake quotes, of what these back tests are trying to do. They're trying to use math to predict the future when the future is not readily predictable. So you have to be very careful to understand what your boundary conditions are. Those back tests are useful if you say we will only invest between 1900 and 2020 which means we're going to go 
take a time machine, we're going to go back in time, and we're going to make an investment in 1960 using the model we developed today. And now we have an advantage over others in 1960. Now that would work. The problem is, if you take a model that's back-tested and fitted to past data without realizing that future data will be different and that your model is no longer useful outside of its range, you can't take a model that's back-tested for 1900 to 2020 and use it in 2021 because the data that's being created today, tomorrow, next week, is different data. It's outside of the boundary conditions under which the model was created. And yet we're still using models as mainstream investors that were created in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. People won Nobel Prizes in economics. Doesn't really exist. There's no Nobel Prize in economics, but I've gotten into a discussion about that on Twitter. People trying to convince me that simply because someone's won an award for fancy math, that theirs is the only opinion that matters, that theirs is the pure truth, which I find this quite interesting in that the reason there's no Nobel Prize for economics is because it's not a true science. You see, the scientific method is very clear. The scientific method involves a few steps. The first step is you form a hypothesis. Let's say the hypothesis is stocks only go up. Well, then you propose an experiment to test that hypothesis. Well, an easy experiment for whether stocks only go up is the first thing is you could look at past data and say, is there any point in the past at which stocks went down? And if there's no point in the past when stocks went down, then you can say, okay, so that can support my hypothesis, or it can disprove the hypothesis if you find evidence that stocks went down in the past. Well, hey, it turns out stocks have gone down in the past, and so you would disprove the hypothesis. You have three steps there. You have your form your hypothesis, you propose an experiment to test it, and then the third is you get results, and that results either supports the hypothesis or disproves it. Notice I said support and not prove. No experiment in the scientific method can prove a hypothesis, which means that there's no such thing as a proven theory. Whether it be modern portfolio theory, the capital asset price at mo- pricing model, the efficient market hypothesis, all of these are unproven theories because it is impossible if you truly stick to the scientific method to prove a theory. Theories can only be disproven or supported. And the more support a theory has, the more credence we give it. But it only takes one piece of evidence to disprove a theory. Whereas it might take thousands or millions of pieces of evidence to support a theory enough to which we start giving it credence and we rely on it. That's why you have the theory of gravity instead of the law of gravity. There are millions and billions of evidence, and you can test it yourself, where if you pick up a ball and you drop it, the ball will fall to the ground. You are testing the hypothesis that gravity exists and will draw things to the center of gravity, which would be the center of the earth. You can test it over and over and over again, and every time you test it, you're giving greater and greater support to the theory that gravity exists. 
and that it works in the way as hypothesized. And yet, even the theory of gravity is not a proven theory. It is simply a theory that has years and years and years and years and years of support, which we have worked and built upon over the centuries. When you compare that to an economic theory, many of these theories have evidence that disprove them and yet are still widely accepted even though the mere concept that a single evidence of proof is available to disprove it should highly discredit the theory. People continue to use it. I've written many times and talked many times about how the efficient market hypothesis makes no sense because the tacit understanding is is that it's impossible to outperform the market, that all stocks and all assets are priced in a way that the returns are equivalent or all stocks are priced in a way that the returns are equivalent. And yet this isn't true. It's very easy to tell that some stocks are priced to have lower returns than others. You only need one piece of evidence. You only need to say to look at the same stock one week where it's 50% lower than it was the week before and say, well, something wasn't efficient there. To say that something's wrong with that theory. But the theory persists because the math is elegant. The math is precise. It looks nice. This is all trying to hit on this concept that backtestings are harmful and counterproductive. And they're harmful because what people use backtests for is to convince themselves that they know the future. That they are thinking through things in an intelligent and scientific manner because they've used a fancy computer to calculate what they should be doing. When instead, they're not truly protected from the uncertainty that exists in the future. Nobody can predict the future. Nobody knows what the future will hold. So if you have a back test that tells you what has worked in the past, you need to be very careful about applying that to the future. Now, the natural question, the challenge to my whole argument here that I think is worth asking and that I want to address is like, well, what do we do then? If backtests are useless, if backtests are harmful, if backtests are counterproductive, well, then what do we have? What do we as investors do? You can't simply throw out the idea of backtests, take away our tool that we use to help ourselves have some sort of confidence about investing in the future without giving us something else. And this is where I want to go into a little philosophy, a little discussion on different types of reasoning and evidence, because I think it's going to break apart where I believe you can find use on these things. Empirical evidence is a form of evidence that has been gained from observation and experimentation. Empirical evidence is backtest, or backtesting is a form of empirical evidence. We observe the past, and we use that as evidence for what might be useful in the future. Now, the words I'm using are very important. Might be useful. It could be useful. Could not, but it could. It is a form of empirical evidence. And that empirical evidence can be useful. But there's a different type of knowledge. There's a different type of evidence from empirical evidence. 
And this is called a priori knowledge, which Wikipedia defines as knowledge, justifications, or arguments that exist independently from experience or observation. So this is knowledge that we can have that does not rely upon experimentation, that does not rely upon empirical evidence. It doesn't require upon us observing what has occurred in the past. And it's knowledge that we can use to assess the future that we can doesn't require that. And why? Well, a priori knowledge is a form of knowledge that can be derived by reason alone. Logic, reasoning, can use this knowledge to make decisions. And pure logic can allow us to approach investing in a way that empirical evidence has failings. And we can overcome those failings with logical reasoned arguments. And that's what I'm hoping to do here. That's what I'm hoping to get across to you. Another form of what's called a priori knowledge, another way of phrasing that, which may be more familiar to some of our listeners, is first principles. Elon Musk talks a lot about reasoning from first principles, and this is the idea of a priori knowledge. Instead of reasoning from analogy, which would be empirical evidence, trying to figure out how the past applies to the future, we're going to reason from first principles or use a priori knowledge, which means we're going to reason from the things that we know to be true, make a logical argument about how those things can be combined together to create new truths. If this is done properly and the logic is sound and doesn't have fallacies, then we can know certain things to be true without any observation or experimentation. Not all knowledge comes from experimentation. And you can still have knowledge without using the scientific method because of this type of a priori knowledge. And where you'll see this is the split between deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. So deductive reasoning, which is the reasoning I use to primarily drive my investing process is the process of reasoning from one or more statements to reach a logically certain conclusion. And these are key words here, logically certain conclusion. That means there's 100% certainty that you're right if you use deductive reasoning properly. Well, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is inductive reasoning. And Wikipedia defines that as Inductive reasoning is the derivation of general principles from specific observations. Basically, you're arguing from specific to general, while deductive reasoning will go from general to specific. So it's the difference between inductive is from the bottom up and deductive is from the top down. You see, while the conclusion of a deductive argument is certain, the truth of the conclusion of an inductive argument is probable based upon the amount of evidence given. So think about um, what we're talking about with backtesting. Backtesting relies on inductive reasoning. It's saying that we have some evidence about relationships between stocks, bonds, gold, and returns. And we're trying to determine how probable that evidence or how useful that evidence is in determining the future. And what it is is it allows you to know a probable understanding of what is available to you. 
but not a certain understanding of how things will work in the future. Meanwhile, deductive reasoning will allow us to create a certain argument for how returns can be constructed. So, we've defined the terms. We've, this has been very deep, and hopefully I haven't lost everyone by now. But if you're still listening here, I want to encourage you to rely on first principles when developing your investing process, because if you do not do this, you can quickly get into the idea that you are operating in a scientific manner with reasonable evidence without understanding the failings of your own process. Backtesting will allow those failings to come into your process because it's relying on limited back evidence to make assessments of the future instead of relying on logical means by which stocks will perform. For example, and I think this is a key example, we're going to go and talk quickly about a few different types of back tests that are often used. One of them is this. So, um, so one of the people I follow on Twitter, G Mariani, um, has a website called globalinvestinginsight.com. And he looks at and examines back tests, spoke, focusing specifically on net net investing. Hopefully in the future, I'll be able to get him for an interview on the podcast. But until then, I want to talk a little bit about some of the observations that I've seen him make. What he'll do is he'll go and he'll look at net net back tests and basically these studies that were done to assess the performance of net nets. A vast majority of them all say that net nets outperform other forms of investing. Net nets beat the stock market, net nets beat S&P 500. And these studies have shown this to be true across many different countries and many different environments. Now that's helpful data, that's helpful evidence. And that evidence is empirical evidence that is useful for making inductive reasoning arguments for why you should be uh, you should invest in net nets. However, there's something that's very counterintuitive in that evidence, which I think is very important for us to discuss today. When you look at these studies on net nets, what they will say is that when you're doing a net net investing strategy, you should not eliminate net nets for companies that are unprofitable or that are constantly losing money over long periods of time. Instead, it will say that the, that the portfolios that have net nets that are unprofitable tend to outperform the portfolios that only buy profitable net nets. Now, the empirical evidence, from what I understand, shows this to be true. That when you're building a net net portfolio, you should not try and screen between good net nets and bad net nets because the bad net nets outperform the good net nets. Now, what does this empirical evidence mean? It means in the past, bad net nets have outperformed good net nets. Now, how useful is that to knowing the future? Is it logical? Could you reason from first principles to make a certain argument for why a good net net, which is one that's profitable, not losing money, not hemorrhaging cash, would underperform a bad net net? The empirical evidence is not in doubt beyond the assessments that Mariani is doing. The empirical evidence is very clear 
This has worked in the past. But if you were to think about it, why would that make sense? Now you could say, oh, well, they'd be so much cheaper. So they have that much further to go. Possibly. But there's no logical basis for it. If you were to logically think through what is the worst type of company you could buy, and it's going to be one that's never made a profit and one that's constantly losing money. Why? Because with deductive reasoning, we can see that the, that the aspects that lead to a return on your investment involve dividends, buybacks, payouts to shareholders, growth in earnings. We can clearly attach those qualities through simple logic and reasoning, simple mathematics, to how your return can work out. You can attach those same things to an argument for why a multiple expansion is more likely to be better at a company that's making money than a company that's losing money. Which means what we have here is a disagreement between the deductive reasoned argument and the inductive reasoned argument. Inductive reasoning, based upon our past evidence, says that there is a probable outcome that bad net nets will outperform good net nets. And yet the deductive reasoning, the process where we reason from one or more statements which are clearly true, to reach a logically certain conclusion, would suggest that good net nets should outperform bad net nets. Because the source of that return is clear and repeatable. They're cheap. They have earnings. Those earnings can be paid out in dividends. They're not frauds. Those aspects can be traced to a return, a reliable return. It's where you hit these other problems that you start to run into it. I can make the same argument through many different studies. People say, oh, well, this strategy outperforms that strategy. Why? We did that episode, Always Ask Why, and this is a continuation of that concept. You need to understand why these things are true. Backtests are simply a form of empirical evidence applied to the past. They are therefore useful only to the past. And in the future, they can be applied as supportive evidence of a probable outcome, but not of a certain outcome. And that uncertainty is likely to be much larger than you expect or much larger than you want when you're risking your money on a strategy. I hope I'm going to try and close this podcast episode now in order to avoid simply repeating myself. But the key concept is for you to understand that backtesting does not follow the scientific method. There's no hypothesis being formed that's experimenting on and then leading to proof or leading to support or disproof of that hypothesis. Instead, what backtesting doing is it's fitting old data to a conclusion such that the conclusion is self-evident from that old data. There's no process here where people are trying to understand the future in a logical manner. We're simply trying to assess the past in hope that it applies to the future. People using back tests, either out of ignorance or malintent, but I think generally ignorance, 
are ignoring the fact that when you extrapolate beyond your boundary conditions, you run into a massive problem from a mathematical basis. And all these back tests are based on based on math and past performance. And in mathematics, it is always cautioned that you can't extrapolate beyond boundary conditions. Yet investing, we allow it. So thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope this show has been helpful to you. The full show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at diyinvesting.org slash episode 86. If you choose to become a patron of this show, you'll receive exclusive insights into my personal investing process through the diyinvesting.org membership program. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Hinegar, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.